All right, we're live. Go for it. Adoniram Judson, as a young college student in Massachusetts, came under the influence of a skeptic by the name of Jacob Imes, who was influenced by what was called the Enlightenment. And they openly challenged a lot of the ideas which had been taught in the churches, uh, inspiration of the Word of God, the basic facts of the Christian faith. And Adoniram had been raised in a believing home. His dad, in fact, had been a minister. I think they were Congregationalists. And, and, and so his father was deeply shocked when his son came back from, the, from college and then started expressing these doubts. And, and so he gave himself to prayer for his son. And Adoniram continued on with this unbelief, spirit of unbelief. And then uh, he, later on, he, after he'd got, uh, gotten out of school, he was one, once on a trip and he was traveling and stopped at an inn to sleep over the night. And they, he was told, that, well, uh, I hope you don't mind, but there's a man, he's quite ill and he's in the next room and sometimes he makes a lot of noise. And, 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 uh, and Judson didn't think it would be a problem. He, took the room, but he, but through the night, he could actually hear the, the sound of people coming and going and, and the sound of this man in, in his uh, uh, agony, really. And it turned out in the morning that Adoniram asked how the, how the fellow had done. And he says, oh, I, I'm sorry, he passed away last night. And, and uh, Judson asked what his name was. And he said, yeah, he... He was a young man by the name of Jacob Imes. Jacob Imes. Yeah, it was the name of the young man who had, in, the very fellow who had influenced him to reject Christianity. And now this man had passed out of time and taken a step into eternity. Dude. And now where would he be? Dude. And it really woke Adoniram up and he began to seek God. And he realized that this spirit of agnosticism or um, skepticism really was not answering the big questions about eternity, hmm. the big questions about accountability, the big, the moral questions, the spiritual questions, just the the questions of justice: Is God a just God? There were no real answers. It was just a sarcastic and critical thinking against God, and. Uh, Adoniram then, in a very clear and obvious way, came to know the Lord. This was in the early 1800s. He was born in 1788. And he uh, had, had a real burden to serve the Lord. And it, it came to him. He had heard about the London Missionary Society, which had been involved in sending uh, David Carey over to India. and William Carey? William Carey, what did I say? David David Carey. David Livingston? No, yeah. William Carey. William Carey. William Carey, who had gone out. David Livingston would go out later. Africa. And, and so William Carey had gone out from the London Missionary Society. Mm -hmm. And and so uh, he, uh, Judson, got married to a girl named Anne Hasseltine, who was a wonderful Christian gal. And they set sail. And uh, they stopped in London on the way, and then they made their way 
from there all the way to India. He was thinking of going to India to serve the Lord. And there on board ship on his way to India, in looking at the word of God, he came to realize that the doctrine of uh, infant baptism was really not in the Bible. He couldn't find it in the Bible. And he came to believe in believer's baptism by immersion, which is what the Baptists believed, and not just Baptists, but a lot of other Christians. And so when he got to India, he looked up William Carey himself, who was in the area by what's today Calcutta, or Calcutta, as they say in India today, in West Bengal. And William Carey baptized... Adoniram Judson. Wow, get it. <laughs> as a believer. He, he went from Baptist to Baptist. <laughs> well, he was no longer uh, of a Congregationalist viewpoint. Okay. So, which, which a lot of, no, no, I think a Congregationalist could believe in believer's baptism, but generally speaking, they didn't. They, generally speaking, held to infant baptism. Now, did these guys comment on this stuff? Because, like, there's the Colossians 2 passage where it references, and this is the linchpin for a lot of those who would hold to infant baptism. And it kind of has a resurgence with there being a kind of getting back to the Bible and some of these mainline denominations that were always seen as, I don't know what, you know. A non-denominational mindset would be like, oh, yeah, you can't trust that. You know, they're so staunch and whatnot. But um, there's scriptural, there's a scriptural argument or an argument from the Bible Mm -hmm. for infant baptism. And it it hangs on this Colossians 2 passage where it mentions you're circumcised, not with circumcision of the hands. And then it jumps into saying, um, I can't, I got to look it up real quick having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith. And so there's this passage. It's in Colossians 2, verses uh, 11 and 12. Is that, would Adoniram Judson, would, would he have commented on that passage? He okay. might have. He did do some writing. And uh, uh, Sorry, it, the, 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 the connection simply isn't strong enough. Uh, uh, in the Bible... Uh, um, circumcision was not voluntary. It was something your parents did to you. Mm-hmm. It was something only that they did to males. They didn't circumcise females. And and it had a particular significance mm-hmm. as far as being marked out as a child of Abraham. Yeah. Whereas... And addressing sin nature being passed down through the man. That's true, too. So. That's... It addresses that issue. So baptism is voluntary. Baptism is not for for men only, but also for women. And uh, there are its own doctrinal ideas being expressed in baptism. Whereas with circumcision, when the people came out of the wilderness and were ready to enter the land, they went to Gilgal, and now they circumcised the males. And it was a way of expressing repentance from sin and turning from sin. I get that. And so there were adults who would go through baptism, which in their case would have been a voluntary thing. Certainly. But generally speaking, it was done on the eighth day. Okay. And it was there was no 
voluntarism, whereas baptism was voluntary. Mm -hmm. What does hinder me from being baptized? Yeah. And so the person would ask. He would volunteer to be baptized. Yeah. And people would be told to be baptized. And as a matter of obedience, they would do so. So, but just like a, a hyper-dispensationalist would say, well, that was a trend, maybe hyper. I don't know. I, I don't want to get too, I don't want to be loose. That's with another words. issue. The, the hyper-dispensationalists, um, they try to make a distance between the teaching of Christ and the Gospels and the teaching of the Apostles, the Book of Acts, mm -hmm. and then later the teachings of the Apostles and the Epistles. They make all these distinctions. Yeah. But much of what you have in the Gospels, while Christ is teaching people who pr principally are thinking and acting as legalists and people who are, who are under the law and are patriotic and loyal Jews, yet so much of what he has to say anticipates the coming of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And he talks about, for instance, in John's Gospel, he talks about the work of the Holy Spirit almost as if it had already happened. So he, so he's anticipating the work of the Holy Spirit. And certainly so much of what you have in the, in the um, uh, Sermon on the Mount, it anticipates the fullness of what Christianity would bring to his disciples after they'd been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Or, or, so, so just you know. in the same way, I'd, uh, I'd altered it. And I'm, I'm, this is rabbit. Oh, goodness. Sorry. This, yeah, I just, that's <laughs> fine. Go ahead. So a, a dispensational mindset would say, or ultra maybe, would say, well, that was a transitionary period. You know, the, the Acts, that era, um, that was a transitionary period. And they'll write off certain gifts that were meant for signs to Jews. And they'll say, well, it was simply for then, never again. Um, and I, I don't want to discount those arguments, but in that same thinking, a ultra-covenant mindset would say, well, adults getting baptized, that was kind of the start of this new covenant, but really how it's properly should be done is the replacement of circumcision and you know, getting these kids into the covenant community. But I, I, and so I, what we think on it one way or another, I'm curious what these guys who made such a big, uh, a, a, such a decisive shift, what they wrote, did they write on it? Well, that I, you know of. Um, I, I, I'm not sure what Judson himself taught on it. I need to okay. talk to different issues. And, and now that's a good question. I can go look it up. But. All, all I know is that back in those days, mm -hmm. there was this thinking that while you're not necessarily really, really, really born again because you were baptized or that your parents made certain promises for you at your christening, you're not really, really born again necessarily. They didn't all believe in what's called baptismal regeneration. Okay. Lutherans and Anglicans might believe in baptismal regeneration, okay, just like the Catholics do. They think that you're born again at baptism. Okay, interesting. Not not all Lutherans believe that. There's groups of Lutherans that reject that doctrine. Yeah, because Zwingli was it Zwingli went to meet with Luther about that very issue. Well, yeah, a big issue with Zwingli was the how you treat the Lord's Supper. Oh, communion. Yeah. Okay, but it might be also. 
that they would they debated on matters of baptism. But the point the point for us is this: regardless of what these other people said or wrote, that in looking at the scriptures, are is there a whole category of people who, because they're children of Christian parents, and the parents have made certain vows and promises, that they're not saved, but they're kind of saved, that they're almost in the door. Is that really the way it is? It does say they're sanctified to the gospel. They're sanctified, but in what sense? Set apart, that predisposition to hear it more, maybe. Well, okay, when you're in a Christian family, you have a lot of huge advantages, Mm -hmm. right? You're, for instance, you're in a protective home yeah. where there's a lot of things that your parents are not going to approve of bringing into the home. And they're going to say, um, we do not approve of paganism. And they'll teach against false spiritual views. Hmm. And they're also going to, in a positive way, inculcate the truths of the gospel, the truths of the word of God. And they're going to teach you the basis of morality. And you're going to learn a lot of things in a Christian home. So are you being set apart in a special way? Yeah, but that's not the same as saying that there's some inward quickening work. Yes. So that you're, because we see it all the time. People who are raised in wonderful Christian homes, but they're as ungodly as can be. What's the explanation for that? Right? You know what the explanation for it is? is that we're all shapen in sin and born in iniquity. And we all need to be born again. And you're not half saved because your, your parents made promises over your head when a, some half-minded clergyman sprinkled a little water on your forehead. Why are you telling me that just now? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, right. Right, yeah. yeah. That's good. Yeah, no, I think that infant baptism gives people a false confidence that maybe they're all right. And it's, it's, it's based on tradition. A lot of it is political. In the, Middle Age, in the Middle Ages, the churches treated baptism the way we would treat applying for a, a social security number. When, you get, when a person is born in the United States, there's information that's sent in, and there's a social security number applied to that child. The child automatically is being born in the United States, is a citizen of the United States. Yeah. Well, in the Middle Ages, the census records were kept down at the cathedral. And what the census records were, were all of the baptismal certificates. Ah, and so in order to become a member of Christendom, which was the view, political view, that when you get born into a locality where the church holds sway, you're automatically a member of the church. And you're born into the, the Christian family. The citizenry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it necessarily embraces the idea that the church is a mixed multitude. Yeah. Of both truly devout and and maybe not so devout. Actually, there's a doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church, and it's spelled out in their own catechism, where they say that there are three kinds of church members. There are the saints, like Mother Teresa. She is an example to us all. People who did worked a miracle. Isn't that one of the... Yeah, yeah, they're super Christians. Yeah. And then there are penitents. Penitents, they're not perfect, but they're trying. And they're taking advantage of the... Of the 
um, methods of receiving grace through the church. So they go to confession, they take the mass, they they use a little holy water, and they do all the different things, which um, which will help to ensure forgiveness and salvation. So they're penitents, but then they'll also say in a third section that there are sinners in the bosom of the church. Hmm. And the sinners, those are the Al Capones of the Roman Catholic Church. They're the people who may almost never go to church. The Christmas and Easter Catholics. Yeah, they're not taking advantage of, of the means of grace. They're not um, uh, taking the Mass or going to confession or doing any of that. But they were baptized. Okay. And the promises were made. And we're going to figure out a way, somehow, somehow, as long as they don't go do something like commit suicide, as, lo- as long as they don't really, really mess up, yeah. that we'll figure out a way to angle them into heaven after a long stint in purgatory. Right? Yeah. So, so the Roman Catholic Church, by that view, saints, penitents, and sinners... They have these different categories, so they can bring everybody in. Yeah, you know, Adolf Hitler was a baptized Roman Catholic. As far as I know, he was never excommunicated. Now, maybe they did it after he died. Maybe they gave him his last rites. Did they, was he ever excommunicated <laughs> oh, from the Roman Catholic Church? The the Nazi was. regime was holding uh, diplomatic relations with the Vatican all through the war. Well, how does that work? Okay, so is is there hope for Adolf Hitler? Some Catholics, they think there's hope for Judas Iscariot. Why not Adolf Hitler, too? I, I'm just a question. I'm just asking yeah. a question. Oh, man, I don't know. Good well, well uh, does the church, uh, is the church supposed to be, according to the Bible, a mixed multitude? And the answer is no. The reformers fell into the mixed multitude thinking, well, just like their Catholic forebears had. Well, wouldn't wouldn't we say that in the epistles that there was a a preaching of the gospel as if the hearers needed to hear it? Absolutely, and every church may have people who are in the church who are not yet saved. Mm-hmm. We know that's always true, but. Is it a good thing? Is it supposed to be that way? Or is it something that we need to struggle against? Should we struggle to have a pure church where everyone in the church is truly and genuinely born again? The answer is yes. Yeah. We, sh- we should make it our goal. So the Anabaptists, one of the things that they insisted on is that um, you, you, must, you must show your faith by your works. In other words, you can tell a Christian by the way he lives. Yeah. And if you don't evidence real Christianity in your life, they were prepared to excommunicate you. And, and the Puritans came up, to the same, well, came up with the same conclusion. Yes. That only truly born-again people should be part of the church. Mm-hmm. And if you're not truly born... That's what put them at odds with their Anglicans that they were trying to purify. Oh, okay. The Puritans were like Jonathan Edwards. He got into a total um, collision there in Connecticut in his local area because he labored 
to have a pure church. Oh, interesting. Yeah, where there were only yeah. true those who had a clear testimony of salvation could be a member of the church. Okay. And they just revolted against it and actually ended up kicking him out of the pulpit. Wild. Now, Calvin believed in church discipline, though, as well. Right, right. So that was, uh, yeah, interesting. Okay. Well, the very idea of disfellowshipping somebody ultimately from church from church fellowship as you have it taught in matthew chapter 18 yeah or first corinthians chapter 5 yeah the very idea of it is that if a person by their doctrine or by their life evidences that they're not really a true christian that then they don't actually belong, therefore, in the church and ought to be removed from fellowship in the church. They may be a real Christian, yeah, but they're not acting like it. Yeah. They're not talking like it. And therefore, the right thing to do is to say, well, until you, you start flying right, you really shouldn't be part of this congregation. Mm-hmm. And that's why it says when you put somebody out of the church, you treat them like a publican, right? Yeah. Or, or a heathen person. Your goal is to save their soul, restore yeah, them. that they might be saved. Yeah. Now, sometimes they're not saved at all, yeah. and they need to get saved. Other times, we didn't, we weren't sure whether they were saved, and they got restored to the Lord, and hallelujah, we're happy about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, but if you teach that that uh, the church is meant to be a mixed multitude. And, well, what is the church for if it's not for sinners? In fact, I remember talking to a clergyman once, and that's what he told me. What is the church for if it's not for sinners? Yeah. Of course, you. Uh, none of us are perfect. Well, we all admit that. Mm-hmm. And we all know that we all sin in thought, word, and deed probably every day. Oh, yeah. And so we know that we have those problems. But that's quite different than saying, I habitually live in unrepentance. Though well, there is a difference here. Mm-hmm. And so when you exhort people about the matter of sin, and they repeatedly uh, blow it off. Mm-hmm. So you have somebody there, they're living in uh, <coughs> open sin, with somebody who's not their wife, they leave their wife, and they're uh, committing adultery with somebody, and you go and you exhort them, and they blow it off. Well, uh, what's our attitude toward that? Well, all sin is sin. Are you saying you're perfect? Uh, You want to exhort me about sin in my life, but are you saying you've never uh, told a fib to your wife or, or that you're perfect all the time? You ever looked at something you shouldn't have looked at? And, and so and so the attitude is, well, uh, nobody has a right to judge anyone else and and there's no basis on which you can judge a person whether they're a Christian or not by how they live. Hmm. Well, the Bible says, you say you have faith without your works, I'll show you my faith by my works. For as the body without the, the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. And that's the very principle of the believing church. Hmm. That's what James teaches, and really you have it taught all through the Word of God. Yeah. And all, so churches that don't believe in a pure church, churches that do believe in a mixed multitude, normative, like it ought to be a mixed multitude, we expect it to be a mixed multitude, all of those churches 
generally don't practice church discipline. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I I know several churches that believe in the idea of a mixed multitude, but they do practice church discipline. <clears throat> so I think it would be an outlier. I, I don't know. I think it'd, it'd be a hard, you'd be on a real mission to find one. But I know what you're saying. I know exactly what you're saying. You've, you, you've seen exceptions to my statement. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But I only know exceptions to your yeah. statement. Yeah. Well, we, most all Christians will admit we know that everyone who comes here is not a real believer. Yes. I know that. I don't think there's a church on the planet that wouldn't be subject to that. Okay, yeah. So we're not saying that every church is perfect, mm-hmm. we're, but we are saying that we want to make it our goal that everyone in fellowship is genuine and real. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. All right, so that was a sidetrack. Let's take a break, drink water, okay. and then get back to Adoniram Judson. <laughs> oh, yeah. Man. All right, hold on. All right, we are back. Um, that was a rabbit trail of rabbit trails. So Adoniram Judson gets baptized on the boat on the way to India. No, he took on Baptist thinking okay. while on boat. And when he got to West Bengal, um, it turns out an associate of, of William Carey named William Ward, he baptized both Carey and his wife Anne in, uh, and that was actually in 1812. Judson and his wife, Anne. Who'd I say? Carey. So, okay. Ward. An, an associate of William Carey baptized Adonai Judson and his wife, Anne. Understood. All right. Yeah. Bad at that, huh? So they get to West <laughs> Bangor. Yeah, we'll, we'll get at it. We'll get at it. We'll t- take it out in the last. <laughs> okay. West Bengal. Yeah, so the, right at that time, of course, the War of 1812 occurred in which America and England went to war, and the British East India Company did not want Americans in India, and so they told them to leave. And so one of, of William Carey's sons had done a survey over in, in Burma, and felt that there was an open door there. And so I think it was in uh, 1813 that Judson and his wife Anne traveled to Burma, and there they um, um, settled. They ended up, Judson ended up living in three different locations, and he set to work in putting together an understanding of the language the great contribution of Adam Judson was that he gave Burma their the first Bible in the Burmese language. Okay, wow. The, so the Burmese or Barmar people, or which is the largest people group there, they make up oh, more than sixty percent of all the people in the land. Burma is about the size, a little smaller than Texas. And if you want to know about uh, facts about the country, go to the CIA website, which anyone can go to, and and you you find there facts about different countries, hmm. and and there you'll find the demographics and the geography and all that. And uh, of the the people at today, there 
is an, an, a pretty sizable Christian population. Not all was a living Christianity, but nominal Christianity there. Okay. Of which, though, there are a lot of really lovely believers. Hmm. And then, uh, um, at the time when Judson went there, you would have had in the outline tribal areas, and there are different districts which which have their own tribal groups, like the Karins and the Kachins and the Shans and the Mo and the and the uh, Chin people. There are about eight different people groups, major people groups, with their own languages, and and much. Some of these people groups were animistic, and animism means that they, like a lot of people living out in the jungle, they worship the god and the monkey, and they worship the god in the python, the god in the rice field, and the god in the banana tree. And so they've got all kinds of gods, yeah. and they're trying to placate all these gods. And then you have the Barmar people, and largely these people are Buddhists. And so those are the people that Adoniram went to, and now he is, is he's an evangelical guy, He's become a Baptist. He uh, starts translating the Bible and translating it into the Burmese language. He finished the job right soon before his death. So he died in 1850. So what's that mean? I think he lived to be 62 or so years old. And he uh, had been then in Burma for 37 years. Took him 37 years, he gave them the Bible, but he also saw it by his evangelistic work and co-labors, more than five or 6,000 converts to Christianity. And one of the remarkable things that happened well, in his time there was that a man came to labor with him named George Boardman. Boardman. Boardman, and there's a Boardman Press. I think it's named after him. Really? Okay. Yeah, it's a printing press. And and his George and his wife Esther went to work among the Karin people. And when they got there, the Karin told them that they had a tradition that there were seven books. But one of these books had been lost, and they didn't know what that book said. But they were told that a white man would come and tell them what the book said. What? George Boardman just happened to be very white. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he was able to tell them a message from the book he carried with him, which was the Bible. And a people group, a people's movement, as I say, a people's movement occurred. And thousands of Karin in mass turned to Christianity. Wild. Yeah. And to this day, the Karin people are traditionally Baptists. Interesting. Yeah. And that happened uh, at his, that time, Boardman ended up dying rather young. And Anne, ha Anne uh, Judson's first wife, uh, uh, she died. Okay. Uh, after... At one of Judson's imprisonments, he Adoniram Judson was would get thrown in jail, and 
the governmental system with political system was very volatile at the time and he was often blamed and accused of things i think and he did these protracted stints in jail which were very hard on himself but evidently harder on ansel because she was going down to the jail because in those days if you were in jail you uh, you may not have proper food yeah, or clothing so you would go to the jail and bring food and bring clothing to your loved one that was there and it just wore her out it's like being in jail yourself and this about the time when she when he got released she passed away oh man what a sorrow she was a real woman of god an amazing christian sister and then uh, uh judson ended up marrying george boardman's widow okay and then later on uh, she died in 1845, and then uh, he married uh, another gal, Emily. And in my library, I have an old book called The Three Mrs. Judsons, <laughs> <laughs> because he married three times. <laughs> he outlived his first two wives, and then Emily outlived him. But uh, it's it's still wonderful how that here, here he was, uh, a family man. He he loved family. He was just a, a guy who uh, probably needed a wife. And it wasn't like he was Superman. But what he was able to do by going to such a difficult place and then to live for Christ and to establish, see Christians established. And to this day, there's a church in Yangon, formerly the town of Rangoon. Okay. So it's uh, right in the southern part of the country, and there is a church that is uh, a Baptist church that Adoniram, it's believed that Adoniram Judson had preached there. Okay. And seen a whole group of people discipled and, hmm. and raised up. So when you were there in Burma, it was like a police state. Like your email was watched, your phone activity, you were followed apparently, were you not? When you were oh, yeah, in the yeah. city? Yeah. Well, yeah. A any visitor like myself would be followed. There, there was a book written not that long ago called um, George Orwell in Burma, and it talks about how um, the the author, whose pen name was George Orwell, had served as a a military officer and doing police work basically and was stationed in Mandalay uh, back in I think the 20s and 30s and and his first book that Orwell wrote was called Burmese Days interesting but the Bur but the Burmese people said really Orwell wrote three books about Burma Burmese Days Animal Farm and 1984. Really, really. So that's, they identify that's, with. That's a that's a joke in a way, but it's it is a saying. It's one of these jokes where we say many a truth is spoken in jest. So, so the that idea of a totalitarian, the government's in all of your business and you're always being watched. That was that was uh, an experience the people in Burma had. So so with that view and that that treatment that what well, treatment your experience 
does the church still stand? Does the government tolerate the presence of Christianity? Or are yeah. they like, hey, we're going to genocide you? Because that's... No, the, the church is not underground as such. Okay. There may be some groups that uh, totally try to hide, mm-hmm. but they don't. Ha- they usually don't have to. Okay. Because the Christians, generally speaking, are non-political. Okay. They are are not <clears throat> agitating politically. The the Buddhist monks, when in um, let's see, two thousand seven, right, right before one of my visits. There had been massive protests in which these monks, who wear this distinctive, deep-stained orange robe, mm-hmm. the saffron robe they talk about, and it's it's quite it's quite out it's it's quite remarkable when you see them walking around. You see a group of of eight or ten monks walking together with their clay pots. They go out begging, and and I. They have different activities they do. Some of them are teachers. They do different things. But but you'll see them walking around the streets. Well, they were protesting something that the government had done. And there were gigantic crowds of them. But the evangelicals that I had worked with and my friends had worked with, they don't engage in, in that kind of thing. Okay. They are not. And they take the view... That as the Lord Jesus said, Behold, I send you forth as sheep among wolves. Be therefore as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So what does a serpent do to keep safe? Well, one thing is most snakes are camouflaged. They're, they're almost invisible in their, in their natural habitat. Yeah. They lay low. They move slowly. They bide their time. That's the way snakes are. And they can move fast if they want to. They don't always. They don't usually. And so uh, the Lord Jesus is saying, you know, you're in a situation where uh, you need to lay low. You need to bide your time. Wait your time. We have a time coming. Jesus would say, my hour is not yet come. Yeah, They were saying, go out and fly your flag, make a show, perform a few more miracles, uh, do something sensational. And he'd say, my hour has not yet come. He, he wasn't into the sensational thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and also, uh, the Lord says, and be as harmless as doves. A dove is not a dangerous creature. A dove uh, doesn't have... A sharp, sharp teeth, or claws like an eagle or a hawk. A dove has one way by which it stays safe, and that is it's able to fly. And so we are to use some elevation when it comes to all the dirty things that are going on down here on the earth. Fly above them. So it's a paradox, isn't it? Lay low, be camouflaged. And so how is it that that Daniel or Joseph uh, or Nehemiah were able to function so long and so effectively in the king's court. They had places of amazing, amazing access and influence, and yet they were very inconspicuous in a certain way. True. In a certain way. Yeah. 
in a certain way. So they, they knew what it was to be as wise as a serpent. Yeah. They also knew what it was to be as harmless as a dove. Yeah. Like Michelle Obama. When they go low, we go high. <laughs> when they go low, we go high. Well, that was uh, that was a pretty good line, I'd say. It was. That's it was. a good line. So the the uh, the church has prospered in very adverse places, mm-hmm. like Angola. We knew missionaries who, when they left in the early sixties, there were five hundred functioning churches that they had left behind. When, they were, when the missionaries were being evicted from the country. And these are indigenous churches that are self-functioning. And then it, what has happened in the church in, in China? Everyone thought that when the foreign missionaries were evicted after World War II, that the, all the Christian work would collapse. But it hasn't happened. Well, and how is it? Are, are today these churches, are they the power brokers? No. There's wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Yeah, they're maintaining a low profile. This is totally un-American because here in America, whenever they'll hear about some somebody who's in danger of martyrdom, we can't let this happen. We're going to sue. We're going to bring to bear all of our political might. We're going to attack those people that are attacking us. That's the, that's the attitude. Yeah. Am I, I wrong? I kind of like it. Am I blowing yeah. smoke? No, you're not. You're not. You're saying the correct thing. Yeah. <laughs> so the what Adoniram Judson did and what the, and that was his pattern mm-hmm. and has been the pattern of evangelical Christians throughout places like Burma is they do not they do not engage in these political uh, in political active, they're not rabble rousers. Yeah, I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah, we, God does not want it. He wants us to use all the influence we can. The Lord Jesus said, "You shall stand before kings," and that's the Lord Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate. Yeah, he stood before the Sanhedrin. He met Herod, but uh, was he in protracted discussions about the economic situation? Not really. Not there, so much. There'd be some modern-day uh, seminary arguments that uh, I'm sure there are. <laughs> I'm sure there are. I don't, but I'm I'm just asking for a candid view. And then when and when Paul and Peter and John and the other apostles stood before the rulers of their day, they stood before kings. Mm-hmm. Well, what did they talk about? Salvation of souls. Yeah, they talk yeah. in one place. He talks about how he talked with him about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Yeah, final accountability. You're a judge. You're a guy who hands down legislation. What about when you will be judged? Judgment to come. Self-control. Well, how does that enter in? Well, that's a great thing to talk to legislators about. They're they're trying to control everyone else. Well, why don't we talk about self-control? Let's talk about self-control. And and true righteousness. Now, that could have every kind of application to the legislation that you're handing down. But I think that Paul was making it as very plainly uh, a gospel presentation to these people. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so should we use the influence that we have? If you know a legislator, if you're in a position of influence, 
use every bit of influence that you have. Yep, Paul did it. A absolutely. But as you do, keep in mind, God has sent us forth as sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. Is that plain? Yes, I think so. Yeah, and, and that's really what's happened. Now, I, I want to talk a little bit about um, what had what went on to happen in Burma up to the present time. And there was an awakening that occurred in the 70s. Now, maybe this is something we should take up at another session. Um, yeah, let's just do that. Let's. This is a good time to stop. Yeah. About Adoniram Judson. We didn't necessarily flesh him out. No, 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 but, no. Well, no, certainly. Yeah, so we'll just do this. We'll stop, and then we'll pick it. We'll do a Burma one. Sound okay. Good? Yeah. All right, break. I'm back real quick with, Dad, what are some books if someone wants to find out more information about Adoniram Judson, or Adoniram, as my three-year-old daughter said when she was first learning to read. <laughs> Four-year-old. She wasn't three when she could read. All right. Well, Edward Judson wrote... A biography of his father. I always encourage people to get a hold of books where either, if they're not autobiographies written by the uh, by the person, or get a book written by somebody who knew them directly. Those are the best. And sometimes there's a bit of a language problem with the older books, but it's worth the effort. And and a serious biography of Adoniram is written by his son, Edward Judson. Uh, there have been several other other books about Judson that you can get, and books about his first wife, Anne Hasseltine. Okay. Um, but I, I would recommend Edward Judson's book. And uh, uh, if, if you want to just check up on, you just read Wikipedia, just, just go around and find anything. that They'll mention different books which are available. But a, a lot of these sources, they'll give you the bare-bones facts of a person's life. Yeah. And even though I know we ridicule Wikipedia as being very shallow and unreliable and all that, but you know, on the fly, a lot of us use it anyway and, and understanding that it may not be quite correct. So, um, uh yeah. All right. There you have it. So I had an iron son. What's his name again? Edward. Edward yeah. Judson wrote a biography about his dad. Um, good resource. If you want to go find it out. And that's it. This time we're serious. We're done.